Are you guys ready to talk about advocacy? <laughs> That's not, ex I did not hear any excitement there. Are you guys ready to talk about advocacy? <laughs> do we want to advocate? Kind of. When do we want to advocate? Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> the problem is we got everyone after lunch, so I think they're all in a food coma, food coma out there. Who's ready to talk about advocacy? Um, so we thought it would be great to start with an icebreaker just so we can find out who's in the room. Um, so we're going to start with me, and then we'll start to my left, so the right side of the room. And we want you guys to introduce yourself, so say your name, where you're from. And based on the theme of the conference, we want to know, based on the theme of the conference and advocacy, if you could see one thing change in the future, what would it be? Yeah, no pressure. Oh, I didn't even think about my answer. Okay, so I'm Claire. I live in Washington, D.C. And I think if I could see one thing change in the future, it would surround public transportation and more access to public transportation for everybody. This is Debbie Grubb from Bradenton, Florida. And if I could see one thing change, I would try to find a way to combat apathy among our community. Good one. Uh, this is Cheryl Cummings from Boston, Massachusetts. One thing. Okay. Um, education access for kids in elementary and middle school. Good afternoon. My name is Dolores Cimini, and I'm from Albany, New York. And if I could see one thing change in the future, is um, that would be greater access to transportation that would come quickly. <laughs> I think this is Deb Trevino from Delaware. And I believe that if I could see one thing change, this ties in with what Deb Grubb said. I, I think that we will not change apathy or feeling as though we are disenfranchised until we all see that we have value. And no matter what anybody else says, we still have value. And we need to understand that and believe it and, and credit it to ourselves so that we can then stand up and do what we need to do. All we need is a hand up, not a handout. Hello, my name is Stephen Robertson. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I think if I could see one thing changed, I think it would be um, a revival of interest in Braille and that um, from the youngest to the oldest, people would, who need it would be learning Braille and not just relying on audio uh, formats and such. Thank you. Kim Avila, Fairfax, Virginia. I'd like to see driver, I would like to see drivers be more cognizant and understanding of the diversity of our pedestrian communities, including people who are blind and visually impaired and have other disabilities. I'm Abby from Virginia Fairfax, 
And if there's one thing I'd like to see is that those big old print on stuff mm. because there's small print on things I read and toys I have. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, I'm Caitlin, I'm 14 years old. I'm from Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, one thing I would like to see change in the future is the ac accessibility for the street lights because when it's morning outside, it's kind of hard to see them like all the time. Great. Jonathan Avila, Fairfax, Virginia. I'd like to see um, disability seen as, uh, as diversity, uh, inclusion, and uh, accessibility of uh, gaming and entertainment. Thanks. Selfishly, I'm loving that we have a big Virginia constituency right close to home for us. Bob Shingleton from Pittsburgh. Bob Shingleton from Pittsburgh, and I guess uh, as someone who's lost vision later in life, I'd like to see a better way to find out resources for dealing with life without vision uh, afterward as far as resources for just enjoyment and resources for just dealing with life as, as well. Hi, my name is Melissa Allman. I am the Advocacy and Government Relations Specialist at the Seeing Eye and a guide dog handler and am totally blind and have been since birth. And I will focus on something a little different that pertains to my role right now. And I, if I could see one thing in the future, it would be for um, air travel and, and all modes of transportation, but right now I'm thinking specifically about air travel to be smoother for people who are blind and visually impaired, and in particular, people working with, with guide dogs, but the entire blind community. I'd like to see air travel be smoother, and I would like to see us be treated with greater dignity during the process. Hey, Melissa, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Carl McCoy, Tallahassee, Florida. And the one thing that I would like to see changed is um, in this age of electronic communication, I think there's a tremendous need for education for our older population, not only for blind persons, but for all older people. Hmm. That's great. Okay. Hi, my name's Anthony Akamini from Honolulu, Hawaii. I think one of the things that I like to see more of is um, more accessible voting in terms of mm -hmm. um, that's great throughout the nation. Hi, my name is Art Cabanilla, also from Honolulu, Hawaii. And if there's one thing I'd like to see changed, would be the decreasing in costs for all of the wonderful devices that we have mm. for the blind as they just cost too much. My name is Matt Selma from Louisville, Kentucky. And the one thing that I would like to see changed on a local level is for my municipal paratransit to have an online booking system, <laughs> which is small. 
<laughs> I'm Victor Roy from San Diego, California. And I'd like to see, I always like to see better, new, and improving access to all public informational services. I am Vida Baez from Burke, Virginia. And um, I think I would love to see employers uh, begin to see the disabled worker as a valued part of any corporation. Um, I believe that they should hire disabled workers because we are reliable, we're dependable, we're trained, we're highly skilled. And um, I just hope in the future more companies will be hiring. And more globally, I, I hope that internationally people will begin to understand that being disabled is not a, uh, a malady. It's not a person you should hide away in institutions and in your backyard as it is in my own country. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I hope for the future. Hello, this is Steve Ford from, originally from California, now living in Portland, Oregon. And the one thing that I would like to see change, and this is a lifelong effort, uh, and that is to um, make some progress in removing attitudinal barriers mm -hmm. which deny individuality, um, you know, that once you've seen one of us, you've seen us all because we're all blind. Um, and greater access, uh, greater accessibility in general. Hi, it's Rachel Schroeder from Springfield, Illinois. And, you know, I like everything that's been said so far. I think I need to get some extra points maybe for trying to come up with something that hasn't been said before. <laughs> but uh, the techie in me would say, and, and you'll know I have a kid in school when you hear this, more consistent, better access to websites mm -hmm. and documentation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My name is Kathy Lyons. It's my birthday. Happy birthday. I'm in Buffalo, New York, and I would like to see a change. And l let me just give you a very short anecdote of why. I was recently, in February, introduced to a woman in a nursing home. She is totally blind, and she's a type 2 diabetic. But four years ago, she got her foot tangled in the sheet, fell out of bed, and broke her hip. At that time, she needed rehab, but not now. And the rehab services, I'm not sure if they can't or won't go into the nursing home. So she wasn't getting any rehab services whatsoever. And I'm proud to say that through my advocacy efforts, we moved her into assisted living on June 19th, 2019. So we need to figure out how we can get rehabilitation into nursing homes. It's just not fair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you.
Hi, I'm Antoinette Cervantes from Austin, Texas. And I think one thing I would like to see change is the transportation. Well, Steve Bauer from Los Angeles. I'm not sure exactly what the question is, but uh, I will get on the, since I just came from an Express Scripts and their website is totally unusable, I would say uh, let's have more accessible websites. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Donna Browning. I'm from Alexandria, Virginia. Um, because I work with the seniors every day and people who are disabled with my job, one thing I come upon a lot are seniors that really do not know of services, the simple services that some of us have. They don't know about magnifiers, uh, where they can get them. They don't know about O&M. They don't know any of these things. But some of them are also just partially sighted or newly going blind. They don't know about these services. And I would like to see um, more talked about in the senior community, in the um, assisted living in all those places that serve seniors more talk and um, advocacy for letting people know what it's like to be just partially sighted as a, you know if you're partially sighted people don't understand they think you're either blind or you see mm -hmm. and a lot of the seniors they still see um, but they are not some of them don't understand what's happening with them so mm -hmm. uh, we really need some more advocacy to work with them work with getting them information hi my name is amanda sell i'm from louisville kentucky and um, if i wanted to see one thing change um, i don't know if this is an issue in uh, your local schools for the blind but this is sure an issue in kentucky I would like to see more blind and visually impaired teachers working in our schools for the blind. More importantly, I want to see someone who uses Braille mm -hmm. as their primary source of literacy as the Braille teacher, not somebody who drives to work every day. I want to see someone who uses it because, and the point I, the comparison I always make is, why would you, would you want to learn Spanish from someone who grew up here in the United States? Mm -hmm. So there we go. Hi, I'm Ted Boardman from Bloomington, Indiana. I'd like to see, uh, that my state and perhaps other states appropriately fund vocational rehabilitation mm -hmm. so they don't have to wait list and deny services. Yes. Hello, I'm Steven Salas I'm from Austin, Texas. And one thing that I would like to see change is, uh, especially in my state, is the acceptance of blind LGBTQ groups. Um, yeah. I'm Rosemary Facilla, and I'm from Muskegon, Michigan, and originally from New York, so yay. Anyway, um, the kind of two, a twofold thing I'd like to see done is because right recently Greyhound has cut back uh, their routes to rural areas, and so there's no transportation between states and such in some of the rural areas. In fact, my own town just lost our ability to do that from a friend that wanted to come up from Indianapolis, so that was, and she's done it for years, all of a sudden she can't do it because it's almost a 24-hour layover, one of the stops. And then also, uh, and this is more important, is for people who are blind or visually impaired, 
between the ages of 18 and 55 in our state, if they are not seeking employment, they cannot get blind services. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to see that change because not every person in that age range is employable. Uh, my name is Don Kelman. I'm from Dine, Ohio. And what I would like to see is uh, governments, whether it's uh, local, state, or federal, be more receptive to our needs. And every time you talk to somebody, they always put up a roadblock on why they can't implement this or implement that, and they just have to do a better job. Hello, I am Kenneth Simeon Sr. I'm the chair of the DCAM committee, and I wanted to begin by offering Rachel Schroeder to come over and sit with us. We have all of our DCAM first-timers and J.P. Morgan Chase leadership <laughs> fellows here seated up front. Uh, if you would join us, Rachel. You're being and, beckoned. <laughs> and I would uh, also let you know I'm from Beaumont, Texas, and one thing that I've, our state worked on this year, we had a bill in motion uh, in regard to equal access to the absentee ballot. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we are still going to continue to work on, even though it didn't, the bill didn't go through this time. We are going to do work doing out of session this next year so that we can be prepared for the 2021 and to us, for us to be able to have equal access to that absentee ballot by mailing in our ballots. And we do have a tool in place that would help us to do that electronically. I think that's everybody. Great. Um, Clark, what would you like to see change? Well, uh, so I am Clark Rockfall, uh, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, for living in Alexandria, Virginia. And I'm just going to go big picture uh, as we picture the future. And I would like to see changed um, a raising of the bar of low expectations, mm. not only for ourselves, but as somebody else mentioned earlier, um, the attitudes of society towards people with disabilities, especially people who are blind. That's great. So Clark, we're talking about advocacy today, but I think we have a room full of advocates, so I think we're done. I think we can just go home. What do you think? I could really use a nap, so I, yeah. I tend to agree with Claire. Sounds like you guys are already on, on the ball, so. <laughs> Just makes our job easier. Yeah. Um, and actually, before we're going to get started here, um, one of the advocacy tools that ACB has really been embracing lately is Facebook Live. Um, so we did one earlier this week with the uni description, uh, which is working to digitize and provide uh, descriptions of all national park brochures. Now you heard Saja this morning. She was a guest on the Facebook Live, as well as Dr. Conway from the University of Hawaii. And we thought it would be really cool to do a quick intro to this session on Facebook Live this afternoon as well. So Kelly, are we almost ready for that? Yes. All right. Great, so we're gonna go live, guys. Are you guys excited? Nice. We're not recording yet, save that enthusiasm. Yeah. Kelly, do you wanna count us down? Awesome. Well, hello everybody out there following us on Facebook. We are here to talk about advocacy. So is everybody in the room excited to talk about advocacy? Yeah. 
Nice. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, so today, we're just going to talk a little bit about what it looks like to advocate for our rights as a blind and visually impaired persons in the United States, as far as how we do it in our federal government and even at our state and local levels. So we are a country that has three branches of the government, judicial, legislative, and executive. So we're going to talk about those three branches and how you can use all three of them, a combination of any of them thereof, or even external resources as well to talk about how we can advocate for our rights. So we're going to go through one, and then the other, and then the other, and then we're going to talk about um, how you can you know, interact all of those to make a difference. I want participation. I want excitement. I want you guys to talk. I am not going to talk to a wall. So is everybody going to participate and tell us their opinions? Yeah. Nice. All right. And we are coming live to you from the ACB 58th Annual Convention in Rochester, New York. We have a great group of advocates here. We just did, went around the room and did introductions with everyone. Uh, we're in representation of ACB members throughout the country. From east to west, yep. And who care a, about a lot of different issues and subject areas uh, where they feel that advocacy is critical. So whether that's accessible voting or equal access in the classroom uh, transportation. What else, Claire? Uh, even just the more broad societal issues, the way people uh, look at us as blind and visually impaired people, the low expectations that people have, changing societal assumptions about what we can or cannot do, uh, making sure that our voices are heard throughout the United States and the world. And we all know that change will not happen by itself. We know that effective advocacy is needed. You know, as they say, you want to be the change that you want to see in That's the world. Right. So who here is ready to change the world? Awesome, guys. Great. Well, thanks uh, for tuning in, everybody out there in Facebook world. And um, we're excited to spend some time the next couple of hours with our participants. And I hope that our participants will then take what we've learned and bring it back to, to your own uh, home states and cities and spread it to all you Facebook watchers out there. So thanks for tuning in with us. And as always, you can learn more about ACB at acb.org. And if there are any ad advocacy issues that are important to you that you would like to raise with ACB, feel free to email Claire and me at advocacy at acb.org. And as we always say, Clark, keep advocating. Thanks, guys. Well, as we're still live, I will start talking. We're going to start talking through an outline that I've prepared all about the three branches of the government, how they work together, what our checks and balances look like, right? That's what we all know here in our country, that we do have checks and balances on power so that no one branch of the government can have too much authority, but then how we can really look at those different branches of the government, see how they work, see how they interplay with each other, and most importantly for us, how we can then leverage those um, abilities and inabilities to make change within our country so that we can bring about all these different issues that we've already talked about that everybody's brought up. So um, we're going to start at the top and go through. Again, I don't want to talk at a wall. For all I know, you guys aren't here. I can't see any of you. So you guys better participate. You better talk. Um, so I'm just going to yell out questions. Feel free to yell back at me. Um, and we're just going to have a discussion. We're going to talk with each other. So and this will be the most we'll say like the most regimented classroom portion, you know, the boring part. <laughs> but it's really important to be an effective advocate. You need to know the landscape. 
You need to know what tools are in your toolbox, who out there you need to communicate with, who has the power or the ability to help address the issues that you're concerned about, and that's what we're going to go through here. Great. Um, if we yell questions out and get participation, uh, would it be helpful to have a mic runner, or are you guys okay if people yell out answers? Will everybody be able to hear? Mic runner. Mic runner it is. Do we have is. a mic runner? Thanks, Kelly. Is that okay? Kelly Gask, come on down. Come on down. We're go live for just a couple minutes more. Okay, yeah. great. Kelly is our Vanna and our, I don't know, everything rolled into one. <laughs> Um, Anna and Pat Sajak. And Sajak all rolled into one. <laughs> um, great. So like Clark said, we're just going to kind of go through, um, you know, the Constitution 101 to talk about the branches of the government so that we can kind of get a feel for what they look like so then we can apply those branches of the government to advocating for our rights. Um, so I'm going to start with the executive branch. Who is the head of the executive branch? The 45, yep, the president, I heard that. Yes, so the executive uh, branch of the government under Title II of the Constitution um, includes uh, the president. Does anybody know what else it falls under the uh, executive branch? Who helps the president? Exactly, the cabinet. So uh, the president is the head of the U.S., and he's also the commander-in-chief of our military. And uh, the persons who work under him are the cabinet members. Can somebody yell out one member of the cabinet? Nancy Pelosi. No. 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 How about a raised hand? Okay, uh, so everybody can hear we're going to do raised hands, and Kelly will run to him. So someone said Nancy Pelosi. That actually falls under the legislative branch. We'll be talking about that very soon. Uh, we're going for titles of cabinet members. So not a specific name, but an, a title. Secretary of State. Perfect. Secretary of State. couple more. Uh, William Barr, the Attorney General. Yep, Attorney General. We're getting specific with names. I like it. <laughs> uh, maybe one more. Yep, Secretary of Education, exactly. Secretary of the Treasury, yep. under which is the Internal Revenue Service, who employed me for 27 years. Hey, I like it. Yeah, so we could uh, sit here all day and name a lot of other different heads, but um, a lot of the different secretaries that you hear about, and they cover a plethora of different agencies. Um, we also have many independent agencies that exist. So have you guys heard about the National Council on Disability, or NCD? Yeah, so that falls with under the executive branch. So these are independent agencies that exist as well. So we have a whole slew of different agencies, sub-agencies, sub-sub-agencies, independent agencies that make up the executive branch of the United States. Okay, so what power does the executive branch have, and what are the checks and balances on those powers? Um, so one, one example, the president has a veto, right, over pieces of legislation. How, do you over, uh, how does Congress override a veto? Does anybody know? Exactly. So everybody said two-thirds vote over, uh, to override the veto. So again, these are examples of the powers the president has, but then uh, the checks and balances that exist to override that, that power. Um, what's an executive order? Yeah, let's make sure we use the microphone so everybody can hear. You got it. Thanks. 
it's a directive to implement legislation. That's yes, but it's it comes down from the president. So it's not through the legislative branch. It's through the president. So it's an example of the power of the president, not through the legislative branch. Um, what's and what's another example of a check of power on uh, laws or orders that um, come from the come from the president or executive orders? What can the court system do? Yep, again, let's try to use the microphone, everybody, so everybody can hear. But yes, uh, orders can be found unconstitutional by the court. So we're seeing the powers of the president, but then we're seeing the checks. Um, so there are lots of examples of those, but we'll jump on to the next branch of the government. What's the judicial branch of the government? I, I do have a question. Yeah, questions? So you said that um, there are organizations that are basically managed by the by the executive, right? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the one that has to do with um, disabilities. National Council on Na Disability, NCD. Okay. Mm -hmm. How does the executive or the president um, impact that? Is that like an advisory kind of a situation where they... So the difference when it comes to independent agencies like NCD are they only they don't have the ability to promulgate regulations like a lot of the different agencies. They're more of a um, advisory organization to give suggestions and come up with ideas. So they're not um, developing any regulations a lot like a lot of the other agencies are doing, but they're coming up with solutions, they're writing papers, um, they're providing information that's really helpful in what the government's doing, but they don't have quite the same authority that other agencies necessarily have. Does that answer your question? Okay. Um, so the judicial branch, what does the judicial branch do? courts, yep. Um, in really short terms, the judicial branch evaluates laws. So Congress, they write the laws. Judicial branch uh, evaluates the laws. Um, so what are some examples of different court systems? Circuit, Circuit court, federal. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court, the very top, yep. But we also have state courts. We have lower courts. District court, yep. So so we have a system in the U.S. where you start at the bottom and you work your way up. So we have a process where you can appeal a decision and move upward. This happens both at the state level and then it can also start uh, go up in the federal level. And we won't get into the nitty gritty of legal um, work, but you could start at the state level and potentially go up to the federal level depending on the situation. Uh, so we have a whole slew of different levels. Um, yeah. Um, so what power does the judicial branch have, and what are the checks and balances on those? So what are some checks on the power of the court? Can the court do whatever it wants? Yep, they can only interpret laws. They can't create them. Um, so sometimes you'll hear people use the term legislate from the bench. You're not allowed to do that. You're not supposed to do that, at least. So courts are only there to interpret the law. They're not there to write their own law. Yep. Yep. Um, 
There's appeals court. Yep. So if uh, something happens at the um, the lowest level, the district court, it can then be appealed. So that's a, a check on the lower court. Um, you can go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, obviously, if you make it all the way up to the Supreme Court, then it can't be appealed anymore. So there is a check on the lower courts, but the Supreme Court is the final um, final voice on the law. Hello, this is Steve for Just a comment on... Um the, the, the term legislating from the bench, mm -hmm. it's one that um, um, is quite often used by those who may not like a particular decision. Um, they may, that person may refer to the court as having legislated from the bench and there's probably um, an opposing um, point of view that says that's um, opposing point of view that the uh, court is just interpreting um, the law, mm -hmm. whatever law as it is. No, that's a really good point, that sometimes one side might see it as legislating from the bench, but the other opposing perspective might not see it that way. So it can get kind of gray. Um, it's, you know, an ongoing conversation. Um, when we look at it black and white as to the definition of what each branch does, um, we can say, you know, you have to do X, but you can't do Y. But I can see how, yeah, it can definitely get a little blurry in certain areas. Yep. Please. Okay, I have a question. My name's Don. Okay, you have different courts, and you go to one court, and you don't like the decision, so you appeal it to the next higher court, and it may go up to the state Supreme Court, and then go to the federal uh, courts. But how could someone, during this process, skip a whole court system and go directly to the Supreme Court? Is that allowed? It can go from a state Supreme Court up to the federal Supreme Court if it fits the criteria for what we call jurisdiction. And there are different forms of jurisdiction. Um, so this can get really nitty gritty into definitions of jurisdiction that those of us who go to law school have to suffer through. Um, so there are different ways you can skip from one to the other. Um, so it, it, the, the short answer is, as we always say in law, it depends. Um, so you have to fit um, several different criteria in order to get from one to the other. And it's not easy. You know, some people really want to get from one place to the other. It's not easy to get jurisdiction in a lot of situations. So yes, it's possible sometimes, um, but you have to fit a lot of different elements to get from one to the other. Yeah, someone just said Gore v. Bush. <laughs> All right, I have a question. So mm -hmm. a quick scenario. So if suppose um, there's something going through the courts like that would have to do with us, okay, mm -hmm. and it gets to the Supreme Court. And so I'm just curious, so we're talking checks and balances mm -hmm. on the, uh, you know, like on the president and the, um, and the other governing bodies. So suppose one of them doesn't like what the Supreme Court says can, like, the president go over it? That's a really good question. So technically, the rule of the Supreme Court is the end-all, end be-all as far as defining 
um, or interpreting, I should say, interpreting is the better word, interpreting what the law says. However, there are always quote-unquote other ways around it. Maybe the president could declare a new executive order. Maybe the legislation could just draft a new piece of legislation to try to um, supersede those uh, the decision of the Supreme Court. So again, we're talking about the three different abilities or capabilities that these branches of the government have. So yes, technically there are always other routes that you could take to uh, supersede the courts and try to continue on to push the uh, the action that you want to take. So for instance, when we saw that um, President Trump wanted to get funding for a wall and he couldn't get it from the legislature, he declared uh, an emergency, state of emergency, and said we're still going to build the wall. Now that's being challenged in the courts. So it's an example of how one branch says, no, you can't do it. So then the other branch says, we're going to take this other step. And then yet again, another branch says, no, we're going to stop you. So there's all kinds of interplay between these different branches. Sometimes that new step that the other branch takes will be successful. Or sometimes, for instance, the the court might tell Trump, you can't do that. We're going to stop you from doing that. So it's kind of like this game of chess and back and forth and taking different steps to see what will be successful. And sometimes you can do it and sometimes you can't. So it just depends. Um, so we have one branch of the government left before we start talking about advocacy and how we use those. What's left? We said executive, judicial, legislative. Oh, yes. So we are going to sign off from Facebook Live at this point. So thanks, everybody out there who's been participating with us. We hope you guys will get involved with advocacy at um, ACB. Shoot us an email at advocacy at ACB if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, everything and anything. I'll make Clark read all the emails. And if you would like to know what happens at the rest of the advocacy boot camp, then we hope to see you at the 59th ACB annual convention. In Schaumburg, <laughs> Illinois, Illinois 2020. <laughs> so what does the legislative branch make? Laws. Laws. Oh, Kelly, is, do we have a runner? We'll get our mic runner back. Okay. <laughs> so the legislative branch is the one that's making the laws. Um, what are the two components of the U.S. legislature? House and Senate, exactly. So House of Representatives and the Senate are two branches. And the two branches have to agree upon the laws in order to get them uh, passed. So each side, a law will often start, or a bill, as we call them, before uh, they get started, um, starts in one house. Then the other side has to pass something similar. They have to coincide with each other. They can't completely contradict each other. So how a bill has to be passed in both houses that are similar, and then they go up to the, to the president. And the president has to sign them. And as we talked about, if the president vetoes it, then it can go back down. If we can get two-thirds of the vote, it'll be successful. Otherwise, it fails. Um, it fails. <laughs> I wanted to start singing Schoolhouse Rock. Um, I'm only a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Uh, <laughs> okay, I have a question. Yeah. Okay, you have uh, either the House of Representatives or the Senate. They pass a law, and then it goes to the president, and he yes. vetoes it, and it comes back down. And they need two-thirds of majority. Is that two-thirds of the majority of the House and the Senate, or who's going to be voting on that? Of both. Yes. 
two-thirds from each house, yes. Yep, of course. Um, so what are some different examples of legislative bodies? So we have Congress, right? We were just talking about the House and Senate. Where, what other examples of legislatures do we have? True, yeah, that's a good point. We have committees that um, work on the different bills. So for instance, we have the Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, what are some other ones, Clark? Ways, thank, yeah, we've got experts in our audience. Yep, Ways and Means, Judiciary, Education. Has anybody ever worked on Capitol Hill for a committee? Oh, we're gonna change that. <laughs> Um, but what are some other examples of legislatures, not just in D.C.? Do we have them other places? Armed, yep. Armed Services Committee and the yep. House and the Senate. Yep. Yeah, so we have uh, legislatures at other levels, too. We have them in our states. I'm from California originally, so we have the legislature that meets up in Sacramento. They have two houses as well, or two bodies, I should say. Um, but then we also have local governments exactly at your state or county level making municipal laws so it's not just at the congressional level and that's important to know because I know a lot of times we think we want to make change right now so we want to get Congress to do it but sometimes just starting at the local level can make a huge difference so it's really important to remember uh-huh Back, oh, sorry, we did something backwards in Florida this year. We were having some serious issues with accessible voting in our state. And so when we went to Capitol Hill to take the ACB initiatives, we also took a letter from our state where we asked each member that we visited to contact their colleagues back in our state and urge them to um, to ask these, these state legislators to do the right thing, to vote in favor of the bill that we were supporting. So it can go forward or it can go backwards because just about everybody in the House and Senate started somewhere in county, state, government. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. And depending on the issue, sometimes it makes more sense to start at the municipal level. Um, other times it's important that we start at the federal level. Um, we talked about, Clark talked about the autonomous vehicle um, bill that we're trying to get passed through. A lot of states have started developing their own municipal or state laws that say, even if we develop autonomous vehicles, you have to be able to pass a vision test to get a license. Well, of course, I don't like that. I think most of us don't like that. So we, under the AV Start Act, we would preempt that and at a federal level say, no, such laws are, in, are, not, um, are not valid. And so that's an example of how a federal law would preempt a state law. So sometimes we want these federal laws because they're going to benefit all of us. And constitutionally, federal law preempts state laws um, for the most part. But sometimes we want municipal laws because we can see the benefits they're having directly right there, boots on the ground. Um, so there are pros and cons to both, but federal law will preempt most state law. So it's important to think about those things. Um, so one last thing that wasn't mentioned with the legislative branch is we often call it the legislative branch has the power of the purse strings. Uh, what does that mean? Allocation of funds. The money comes from the legislature. Uh, Clark just said cha-ching. Um, so that's really important to know because uh, uh, the president could come out with an executive order and say, 
everybody has to, I don't know, something silly, but if Congress doesn't allocate money to do it, then that uh, order has no no weight behind it because just because you say you have to do something, if we don't have money behind it, then nothing's going to actually happen. So that's huge. Uh, we, we need money, for better or worse, to get things done. So that's an important thing to remember. I have a comment. Mm -hmm. They have one more power. Okay. The power to impeach. <laughs> that is a good one. I wasn't thinking about that as far as our advocacy that we're focusing on, but this is indeed true. <laughs> Congress does have the power to impeach. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. So the House uh, impeaches, and then the Senate can take the secondary step if it gets there. So, was there another comment? I heard a potential. No. Okay. Um, so just about the issue of the federal law superseding state law, mm -hmm. and I apologize, this is a touchy one, but around like access to abortion, mm -hmm. um, aren't they saying that if Roe v. Wade goes away, then states, it goes back to sort of the way it was before and states could make their own like individual laws, right? That's correct, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Clark's giving me some good, some good comments to talk about. Um, so there are, um, we are a republic, right? So a republic means that um, we're made up of different bodies and then um, representatives go to Congress to represent us at a federal level. But we are the United States. So we have 50 states and each state can promulgate or not promulgate, can create their own laws. But then we also have the federal laws we were, like we were just talking about. So there are are a lot of issues that are only dealt with on a state level. The Constitution specifically talks about what powers that uh, we have that should go to uh, the federal government, but there are also a lot of issues that are only left to the states. And this is something you hear lots of debates about, whether it should be dealt by the federal government or if it should only be dealt with by the state government. But the Constitution outlines a lot of what's federal and then what's not federal. So a lot of issues we could see should net, depending on your opinion, um, but a lot of issues don't necessarily ever have the right or ability to go up to the federal level, whereas other things do. So that's important to know, too, when you're talking about issues. Um, so a lot of issues we'll talk about are at the federal level because as people with disabilities, we're probably most often going to point to the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Rehab Act, which are federal laws. So most often, we're going to talk about the federal level. But depending on what you're talking about back in your own municipal areas, it could be something that's not going to go all the way up to federal uh, laws. So it's going to be dealt with via state laws uh, and state power. So it's important to really understand where you're coming from as well. And as it I believe it was Debbie from Florida gave the example earlier with accessible voting. You know, the states have the ability to draw the congressional maps for their states. They're in charge of running the local elections, but it's a federal law that you can't have a poll tax and must have equal access to the booths um, for voting. And then I think I heard Doug Powell in here earlier. Um, Doug has done a lot of work in Virginia with accessible uh, pedestrian signals. That is something that's implemented on a good sneeze state level. 
however, interstate commerce, the transportation of people, goods, and services across state lines, um, and vehicle safety, as well as autonomous vehicles, and a lot of regulations for transportation are done at the federal level. So it's, it's an important thing to know the distinctions between the state, federal, local, as well as the specific issues that we're working on. Uh, but back to Debbie's point, just because Congress doesn't have the, or the federal system does not have jurisdiction over an area, it doesn't mean that they don't have some power levers that they can pull to influence a, a decision or a policy. Great, thanks Clark. Um, so we are going to jump back in and talk through the same um, branches again, but now we're going to talk about how we can use those uh, to advocate um, on behalf of issues. We'll obviously talk about it in the realm of advocating for rights of people who are blind or visually impaired, but you can use these for all kinds of different things you're advocating for. Um, so first, we'll talk about the executive branch again. So we want to talk about how advocates can reach out to uh, the executive branch in different ways to advocate for rights. Um, so what's one way you could use the executive branch um, to advocate for rights? Does anybody have any ideas? To uh, file comments with uh, executive branch agencies like you know, the FCC, for example, for video description or... Uh, Department of Transportation for rules regarding paratransit. That is a great one. So has everybody heard of a notice of proposed rulemaking or an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking? Okay, so I'm not getting yeses from everybody, so I'll talk a little bit about it. So in these different agencies, uh, okay, yeah. Yes, Clark is giving me a good example. So. Basically, I'm going to step back. So federal agencies have been given the power or authority to promulgate regulations for different federal laws. But appropriately, and I'm very thankful for it, as Americans, we have the opportunity to give our own comments, our own input, our own answers to questions on what these regulations should look like or these policies should look like. So uh, these agencies... Uh, you gave the example of the FCC. Clark gave the good example of Department of Transportation. I was just talking about uh, what's going on with service animals under the FAA. So hopefully this fall, we were told by the FAA that this fall, persons are going to have the ability under a notice of proposed rulemaking to answer some questions, to give comments on issues surrounding service animals as they are seen under the Air Carriers Access Act. So the FAA, which falls under the executive branch, is giving Americans the right to put in their own two cents on these issues. So that's a great example how, as advocates under the executive branch, we can get our, our comments out there. We can answer these questions. We can say, hey, this is how something should look or it shouldn't look this way. So it's our ability as advocates to get our voice out there. So we highly encourage everybody to participate when these come out. Um, again, like um, both myself and Clark talked about, 
a lot of these opportunities are coming up with different laws we're working on. So you guys can reach out to Clark and myself, and we can help uh, point you in the right direction and help you submit your comments, because it's really important as an advocate um, to not just say, oh, the government's dealing with it, but you can actually get your voice heard in the process of promulgating these regulations. So that's a great example. Any other ideas under the executive branch? Another way you can do it is you can go directly to the agencies. So under the executive branch, we talked about earlier, there's all kinds of agencies. For, for instance, we talked about uh, the Secretary of Education. So that's the Department of Education. Um, we have HHS, uh, the Health and Human Services. Um, under those different agencies, we have sub-agencies and what feels like sub-sub-agencies and so on and so forth. And again, they're the one who are dealing with these different issues. So you can call them up and say, I want to meet with Joe Schmo to talk about an issue. Um, Clark talked about the diabetes issue we're working on, and we were very fortunate with the council we're working with to get a meeting with uh, centers from Medicare and Medicaid center services, which falls under HHS, and we were able to get a meeting with them to talk about the issues we're seeing with durable medical equipment and actually get to get our voice out there. So you can actually reach out these to these different agencies and sub-agencies and try to work with them to uh, work on issues that we're seeing. So that's another way you can do it. Any other ideas? Um, so can we talk about the strengths and weaknesses of this particular branch of the government? Are there any weaknesses that we see when advocating through the executive branch? I just heard somebody say getting access to the executive branch. That's a really good point. Um, we just talked about the fact that Clark and I were able to uh, talk to HHS we were really fortunate to talk to HHS because the attorneys we're working with have rapport and a history with HHS, and so they were able to get their foot in the door. Not a lot of people have that ability to get their foot in the door. So that's a really good point. It can be really difficult to do so. Any other um, ideas? On uh, one person said you're not listened to. That's true. Sometimes... Um, you know, you go in, you give your comments, and that's it. You feel like, and I think not just feel like, it does happen that those comments are just taken and things aren't done with. So that's an unfortunate truth. What happens, what happens when the executive branch doesn't agree nor believe in the... Um, advice is being given or the issues that have been placed before them. They just reject it outright. Nope, that's a really good, really, really good point. Clark just used the term issue bias. An executive branch is essentially overseen by the president. When a president comes in in that new administration, they often have their bullet points of what their priorities are. And if your priorities don't necessarily, if their priorities don't necessarily align with what you're doing, unfortunately, the reality is the administration has their own, pol their own uh, bullet points to work on. And as a result, sometimes they might just say, sorry, we're not, that's not what we're working on. So that's a really good point, unfortunately. That is the reality of the a new administrations. For instance, under Obama, people would say, oh, that's not one of Obama's um, priorities. Sorry, we're not going to work on it. Same thing with Trump and same thing with the next president. So that's just the reality. So that's a really good point. Any other ideas?
Um, so another part that kind of goes uh, hand in hand with that is that federal agencies have specific responsibilities. So you can't just say, hey, the health and human services, they have to do whatever we say. Nope, they have very specific uh, guidelines on what their role is, and they can't necessarily steer out of that responsibility. So you have to understand what, uh, what they're doing. Hello, this is Steve Fort, mm-hmm. and if the uh, executive branch, uh, for example, um, um, if people within the um, executive branch and, and that part of the Congress likes, you know, gerrymandering and various other ways to limit um, voting participation, one can. I guess appeal to the legislature to uh, um, put forward legislation that would be more favorable to uh, um, inclusion in terms of people voting. Yep, so uh, you were just talking about gerrymandering and what the uh, makeup of a particular district would look like as far as it relates to voting. That's something that we can talk about when we talk about the legislature, but that's true. Those kinds of things can impact different issues. So given that, if the executive, for example, uh, rejects something that a, an organization really feels they want to continue to push, they simply go to the legislative branch then and, and gather... Um, support there. Exactly. And so that's something that um, we're going to talk about over and over today is if you go to one uh, branch of the government and you're unsuccessful, maybe it's appropriate to go to another one. Maybe it's appropriate to go to another one. And maybe it's appropriate not even to work within the constraints of the government and try to use something like media. So that's kind of the, the big takeaway of today that I hope we all get to is that you really have to think hard about what branch of the government's going to be successful, or based on the administration, maybe you shouldn't even touch it. Um, Clark, again, was talking about our imperatives today, and one of the imperatives is the durable medical equipment. Clark talked about the fact that we're approaching it from all three angles because it's such an important topic, and we're not sure who's going to actually give in, quote-unquote, and help us with the issue. So we're taking a three-pronged approach, and we're going to the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, potentially. Everything's still still in its infancy, but we're potentially going to go to all three. So sometimes it's deciding where to pick your battles, and like you said, if one's not going to work, maybe you go to the other. Um, sometimes we're talking administration. Sometimes the president is of one political party and won't support an issue, but maybe the legislature is the opposite political party, and you can be more successful there. So yes, it's about weighing what's going to be beneficial right there, right then in that specific instance. Or maybe one year the uh, executive branch is favorable, but if you think, oh, if I just wait for the uh, elections in two years, things could change. Maybe you're going to decide it's not worth advocating for this issue right now because we don't want negative uh, consequences. So I'm going to be willing to wait those two years and see what could happen. So there's a lot of different variables we're juggling when we're thinking about these. I have a comment. Mm -hmm. Victor here. Um, In California, we experienced something with our governor over the last two years. We brought a bill, we worked at the grassroots level, Mm -hmm. we went through the process, we got it uh, through the assembly in Sacramento and then through the Senate, 
and the bill reached the governor's desk. He had one more year in his term, and he, uh, he looked at the bill, he liked the bill, but he wanted to, ha- he told us he wanted changes made to the bill, and he wouldn't sign it mm-hmm. in 2017. So we went back, and ha- we had to reintroduce it through the committee, and get it back on the floor to be voted on in the Assembly and Senate. We did that. It came to the governor, and he signed it into law. So I'm bringing that as a, I didn't know this before, but a prime example of working together in a partnership brings about those changes. So something very important that could probably work as well with the federal levels. That's a great, great suggestion. Thank you. Um, Clark wanted to chime in with a couple of comments on this as well. Down to brass tacks. Basically what we're talking about here is petitioning the government. That's our First Amendment right. Within the freedom of speech, the First first Amendment to the Constitution, we have the right to petition our government. They don't have to listen. A lot of times they won't listen. There are thousands of pieces of legislation introduced every Congress. A Congress is two years, two sessions, each one's a year. So we right now are in the 116th Congress. We're in the first session, 2019. Um, there have already been around 2,000 bills introduced in both the House and the Senate. How many bills do you think have passed? I heard 10% less, and that's, and that's normal. I don't know the actual number, but on, normally it is well less of 10%. There are a lot of people exercising their First Amendment rights, and as Mitt Romney famously said, corporations are people too. So there are a lot of companies and special interests and organizations, organiza- nonprofits like ACB, individuals like all of you and our members who are exercising their First Amendment rights. There's only so much oxygen in the room, and a lot of times our priorities aren't going to make it through. But we need to focus on what we can do. You know, it's, it's not like people are getting a little down, like, well, what if they don't listen to us? It's like, yeah, that could happen. That could happen a lot of times. But it's really cool when they do. And think about the broad impact you can have when they do. So in, in some cases, like Claire was talking about petitioning the executive branch, the president. It's one person with a whole lot of power. There's a lot of appeal to being able to just convince one person. And that's, that's certainly a strength of working through the executive branch. But... You know, 50-50 shot, president's not in your party, probably has different views on an issue than you do, so you go to Congress. Well, now you're dealing with 535 individuals with opinions. So now you have to try to convince a lot more people. But the, the beauty there is you don't have to convince everyone. You have 535 chances to change some minds there. And all right, say you're not going to do the legislative, you go to the court system. You know, maybe you have all the merits behind you, 
but the court system can take some time, and time can cost money. So it's always that balance of reaching into your toolbox to pull out the tool that could be most effective on a given issue at a given time and deciding how you want to proceed. But one thing's guaranteed, if you do nothing, nothing's gonna happen. Comment, this is Kenneth Simeon from Texas. I wanted to uh, chime in on one part regarding the budget and deficit. A number of times when we've gone to request things that didn't cost much money or if you find out that didn't, it, your issue does not cost a lot of money in order, or any money for them to uh, resolve an issue, then you have a better chance. But it's always good to consider the financial aspects of it before you even present something, thinking about the budget issues that we're facing. Wow, you raised this really high. <laughs> um, no, that's a great point. Thank you, Kenneth. Yeah, the, the money behind it, too, is something that's really important to consider. You know, we when I, I was a, a toddler, but I would like to think that when they passed the Americans with Disabilities Act, a lot of people were saying, well, that's all good and fun and great that you want to make things accessible, but that's going to cost a whole lot of money. Um, so thinking about those kinds of things is important to consider as well. Um, so talking about, reading my notes, um, so what are examples of changes that have been made in the U.S. via the executive branch? Can anybody give me an example of something? It can be, oh, go for it. <laughs> Someone's dog is asleep. <laughs> Hi. Um, my favorite executive order, and I happen to remember the number, 12125, was put through by President Jimmy Carter. And what it stated was that if a disabled, in this case a blind person or a visually impaired person, had worked for two years without having taken the civil service exam, they could make, be made career conditional upon supervisory approval. That's a great example, thank you. So that's an example of what the executive branch can do um, within their authority of power to have a positive impact um, for our, our circumstances, the lives of persons with disabilities. So that's a great one. Um, another one I was thinking about when I was writing my notes up was um, Obama in 2010. He had the um, executive order that talked about employment of persons with disabilities to, to bring um, changes about in the federal government and employing federal um, employees. So, yeah, there's some really great things that you can do through the executive branch that we've seen and hopefully we'll continue to see. So, great. I, I thought I heard once that um, the segregation of the armed forces was done by executive order. Is that true? I do not know that answer. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a comment also. A point of clarification, please. What, the president has the power to do, issue the executive orders. Some, most of them probably are legal. Some of them may be challenging or neutral or borderline. When the president issues those orders, do those orders stand only under that president? So the next president, it's like a clean slate. Um, no, they are not. They, they continue on. They do. 
Yeah, yeah. Clark just chimed in a good point, though, that the next president could easily say, I reverse that executive order. So they do stand, but there's, depending on the political party and the time that's going on or things of that nature, it could be very easily overturned. And that's what Trump did. Yeah, Clark just said dreamers was a good example. The uh, policy for uh, children who, whose parents uh, brought them to the United States. Great. Um, so now we can jump into the judicial branch and talk about some of the same things. So actions that have happened under the judicial branch. Um, so how can uh, advocates in our situation, blind advocates, use the judicial branch to bring about changes? Probably the most obvious we would talk about, bring lawsuits under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehab Act, IDEA. Um, you probably have a lot of state policies. I'm from California originally, and we had the People with Disabilities Act. Um, so yeah, bringing lawsuits is the big one. Um, what are strength and, strengths and weaknesses, though, of doing this? I think a lot of times when we get upset, rightfully so, and I get it, I went to law school, we think, let's just sue them. That's just the response. We always say, let's just sue them. Um, but what are some strengths and weaknesses about bringing these different complaints? Okay. It takes a very long time yes. and a whole bucket of money. Yes. So time and resources, financial and other resources. The other thing that is bad about suit is what I find is if you start out in your advocacy yelling and screaming mm -hmm. and stamping your feet, you have nowhere to go. Yes. If you start out being collegial but firm, you know, um, you have places to go. So you don't start out at your highest hot place before you've even begun to do anything else. That's a really good point. That's something I think Eric does a really great job of and ACB's done a great job of assessing is maybe we shouldn't jump into the fire right away and bring a lawsuit. We're going to try to reach out to the company or the organization or whatever it is. We're going to try to play well in the sandbox. We're going to do what we can. And maybe our final solution is to bring a lawsuit. But yeah, we want to play well in the sandbox first and try to come up with other solutions first. Um. I have, a question. I have an answer also. Mm -hmm. So uh, also if we um, are too quick to sue and all that stuff, we could be burning bridges that could actually help us. Exactly. Yeah. We want all the connections and positive relationships we can have. Any other thoughts? Yep. Just, you know, yep. Please. Hello. This is Steve Ford. In California, um, two attorneys, um, Laney and Feingold, negotiated with uh, Bank of America and I guess other banks too, I'm not sure exactly, but anyway, we were able to um, get them um, to agree to install talking ATMs in California, and I guess elsewhere too, mm -hmm. California. And they're actually installed. Um, yeah, but that's how it started. Yeah, and it's not to say that 
bringing lawsuits is a bad thing. Sometimes it's the right way to go. It's just really exploring your options and seeing what we think is going to be the most beneficial at what time in the process, what we can afford, who our allies are, that kind of thing. Um, another thing to consider when bringing a lawsuit um, at the federal level, at least, is um, I'm sure this isn't news to a lot of people, but the Supreme Court has not been very helpful when it comes to cases under the Americans with Disabilities Act. In fact, so many Supreme Court rulings were so negative for the longest time that uh, Congress had to amend the ADA. In 2010, they made the ADA Amendments Act because the Supreme Court had chipped so much away at the definition of disability. Um, so a lot of lawyers that I've worked with are really, really, really happy hesitant to bring cases under the ADA that could go to the Supreme Court. So that's another thing to consider. Now, you know, it's not to say that the Supreme Court wouldn't uh, act favorably at some point. We don't can't read the future. Um, so that's possible. Also at the state level, it could be more beneficial. Or, you know, a case doesn't necessarily have to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, but that's another big thing to consider as well, is unfortunately the, the courts haven't played well. So... Um, can people give some examples of changes that have been positive through ju the judicial branch? Civil rights protections. Mm -hmm. Civil rights protections. Yeah, we have some great, great cases. Um, speaking outside of the uh, the area of disabilities, you know, we have Brown v. Board of Education. That was huge. Um, you know, ending segregation in education settings. So things like that. Does anybody have an example in the disability rights world? We have a mic runner, right? Nobody. Okay. Um, I was part of a law. It ended up settling, but I was part of a lawsuit against the law school admissions council um, for making uh, not making their process accessible. And it did didn't go all the way through the judicial system. It settled, but it, it started via a lawsuit. Um, so there's some. You know, we have seen some positive outcomes that have come from the um, judicial branch. So I don't want you guys to take away that we should never bring a lawsuit. No, the laws have definitely been helpful, and we've seen some great impact. Again, it's just the idea that you have to think long and hard and carefully about what's going to be the most beneficial and at what time you're going to bring a different, uh, a different claim. Uh, like I said, in the national office, we're starting to think really seriously about litigation as it pertains to some of the devices um, like glucometers and what have you for people with diabetes because these companies have not responded. We've tried to play well in the sandbox. We've reached out with them. We've communicated with them, and nothing's changing. So, again, I have no definitive answers yet, but maybe that's a, a step we want to take because things aren't changing. So I'm not saying that lawsuits are always a negative thing. We just want to think about it. I have another comment. Yep. Claire, yep. it's important to, to realize that the lawsuits are very expensive. Yes. And that's why... Most of the time, it doesn't happen. But the obvious choice that most people don't get until you're involved is, like I am right now, involved with public officials violating open meeting laws. Mm -hmm. And I'll be challenging and knocking something off the ballot in next March primary in California because they violated, I have to go to a specific attorney who deals in that part of law and the legal challenge will knock out their decision to put to put something on the ballot mm -hmm. so the challenge will be we're taking this out and uh, 
you know, sometimes the attorneys can intervene. You go to the attorney and pay the, uh, the small amount, and it doesn't have to go to a lawsuit. Yes. So yes. That's, a, that's another key component in the process. Yeah, sometimes even just the, the idea and notion of you having an attorney can be um, deterring enough. You know, you're saying, I'm going to reach out to an attorney because my rights have been violated. Sometimes that's just enough to rattle the, the bars a little bit to get people to respond. So, um, But it's true. The financial restraints are a huge thing. Um, one legal resource, though, um, that persons with disabilities should be aware of is the Protection and Advocacy Office. Um, Congress funded a legal uh, department or offices um, to deal specifically with the rights of persons with disabilities. Now, again, one of the downfalls there is because they're uh, federally funded agencies, the resources are really limited. So a lot of times I'll tell people, did you contact your P&A office? And they say, yeah, they told me they couldn't help me. And it's because of lack of resources. But I've also heard amazing stories of the protection and advocacy departments helping people with their rights. So that's another legal resource I encourage people to always have in their back pocket just in case they need to be um, utilized. Um, so... We talked. Let's talk about the legislative branch now. So, how can people utilize uh, the legislative branch in order to advocate for the rights of the blind or visually impaired? In this great state of New York, mm -hmm. we go to the LOB, which stands for Legislative Office Building, and mm -hmm. sometimes the Capitol, depending on where your rep's office is. And we create a position paper, mm -hmm. and we don't do more than, say, four issues because we want to highlight important things. And what we urge members to do is contact their legislator ahead of time and make an appointment. And then you can take that position paper with you. And then a few months later, you can call them at the home office. You can visit them at the home office. And uh, so... That basically, I guess, is legislative seminars. That's what, yeah. Thank you. That's a great plug. You guys should attend ACB's legislative seminar each winter, usually in February, where we do just that. We talk about issues that the blind community is facing. We um, arm ourselves with literature to bring, and we go up onto the hill um, and talk to representatives. I know a lot of states do that at a state level at your own legislative seminars. So that's a great thing that we can do with the legislature is, you know, we are the whole idea of the republic is where we go to our representatives and saying, these are the issues that we're experiencing or dealing with. We want law. Um, either We either want to support law or not support law that will impact our community. Here's who we are. You know, Listen to our voices. That's a great privilege we have in the United States. I know sometimes it can seem frustrating because you feel like they're just paying lip service, you know, Nothing's going to happen, but we should never um, forget what a right it is that we can go and talk directly to our representatives. I have one more comment. Mm -hmm. You haven't said anything about the other part of the process, which is initiatives and referendums. That is true. I didn't even put that in my notes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that for everybody? Okay. Oh. Oh. oh, sorry. Okay. I'm coming back. <laughs> So the, the people have the power, whether you want to do it, it within your state, 
uh, or local municipality, your county, your city, uh, to have an initi- a ballot initiative. And that's something that is successful a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does take a lot of hard work and a lot of people because you have to collect a certain percentage of voters' signatures that will be uh, verified by the registrar of voters to make sure it qualifies to make the ballot. The referendum, on the other hand, is a case where a legislative body will bring forth some change, an ordinance or a change in an ordinance that you might not like or may be affecting a large group of people um, adversely. And with the referendum in my city, we had 30 days to collect 10% of the, of the registered voters that voted in the last election uh, in order to go back to the council and say, uh, the people in the city don't like the decision you made. Please, you have the, ch- the power to rescind that. They chose not to do that. They said, the people are going to agree with that. We're going to send it to the general election. They did that. And uh, the people voted with us, and we won... Uh, we had a, an overwhelming majority, uh, so it it killed it killed what they wanted to do, and it was a it was an important learning process for a lot of people that the referendums do work and initiatives do work. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Are you from California by chance? <laughs> I la- I'm from California originally, and I know California is infamous for our. Uh, our initiatives on our ballot, so I love it. I, this is Debbie. I just had another comment about using the judiciary. It certainly is our right, and sometimes we have great success. But it seems to me you need to weave like a tapestry or lay some bricks to build it on. You need to start going to county commissions, city councils, because even in our state, for example, in our state of Florida, and I'm sure it's true in all the other states, there are the vast majority of bills never make it out of committee. Mm-hmm. They're never heard. So again, I think you can link it to like a lawsuit. If you've got to do it, you've got to do it. But the more support you can get along the way through going from the small, the municipalities, you know, the districts, that kind of thing. People get mad and they say, we need a bill. Well, that's not always the best way. Mm -hmm. It's a good way, but it it takes some foundational work to get to that point where people are going to notice it. And you've got to have key players in the legislature, wherever it is, to support what you want to do, which means you've got to have people who know people and who are going to call and say, they're going to come to you with this item. We really think you should support it. So it needs a lot of preparatory work. You just can't say, I'm going to get a bill submitted. I think that's a really great point. And I think that's the case with really any of the three branches we're talking about, probably most significant with the legislature, but with all these areas, you can't just jump in and say, I'm going to sue you tomorrow, or I'm going to create a new law. There's a lot of, you know, footwork to be done in these areas. Um, And a lot of times the footwork might include all of these, but thank you. That's a really good point that you do have to put the time and energy into it. Um, So what are some strengths and weaknesses of this particular branch of the government? Well, I, I, I had the question, I guess, yep. on the previous topic. 
Of course. Uh, and a comment, I guess. Yeah. I've seen a couple of organizations that I've been part of, Press, cl press Club and, and a couple other organizations, invite legislators to come speak to them. Um, we're, someone's asking for you to speak up a little bit, speak into the mic. Okay. Is that better? Have to really eat it, I guess. Yeah, eat it. There we go. Okay. I've been a part of a couple organizations that were not disability related, but they invited legislators to come speak to their group and it was a way for them to listen to the legislator talk about their priorities, but also the reverse, to ask questions mm -hmm. and tell them what their priorities were. Is that something that is effective? And sort of, are there better ways to do that would be something I'd be looking to learn. I think that's a great idea. Um, when I was talking to the ACB students the other day, I talked about the concept of networking. And I think that's an, obviously when you think of networking, you think at a really micro level, the people you know and, you know, shaking hands. But I think that's an example of like macro networking where you're making these relationships with people and these legislatures are finding out who you are and vice versa um, so that you're developing those relationships. Um, Senator Casey is really well known in Congress for being pro-disability rights. And I think one of the reasons we have such good rapport with his office is because one of his staffers named Michael Gamble McCormick literally knows ACB. He comes to our legislative seminars. He's come to our conventions. Uh, me and Tony or Clark or Eric, we go to his office constantly and talk with him. So we've developed that rapport and that relationship. So he's obviously pro-disability rights from the beginning. That's one of his values, Casey's office. But I think having that relationship goes so much further to help help us get our voice out there. So I think that's a great point. Art from Hawaii, um, in answer to your question, yeah, you know, the, Hawaii has been fighting for over 15 years for Medicaid buy-in, mm -hmm. and we finally got it. So in, in, sen in the sense of the bad, the bad is that it took 15 years. But now that we have it, it's easier now for us to tweak it because it's not quite what we want. You know, not all the partners are happy with everything, but we got it to a point where they're satisfied enough that we got it passed. So now that we have it passed, it's a little bit easier for us to tweak it around and make it work. So I think that's the good part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people argue you got to start small and chip away at it. So that's definitely one approach for sure. Um, I think one of the challenges that we all face is... Um, how do we get everybody who is part of our organization to be actively involved? Mm -hmm. Because, no, no, I mean, because I think one of the issues is that there are people who, for whatever reason, just sort of advocate their right to participate and tend to say, well, I don't need to do this because the other, you know, somebody else, or this is just something that our leaders are supposed to do. And I think if we can figure out ways of getting you know, people who don't necessarily think of themselves as, as advocates to, to get involved, I think it can certainly help with the process. I think that's a great point. You know, even outside of our community, that's something you hear constantly as Americans, and I'm sure in other countries, people have got to speak up. You've got to let your voice be heard or nothing's going to change. So I wish I had a magic answer to that question, but it's a great point. 
Um, so talking again about some of the weaknesses and limitations of the legislature, um, one other thing that we haven't talked about is that even though we create laws, sometimes laws can be negatively interpreted. Um, so for instance, I talked a little bit earlier that the way the Supreme Court was interpreting cases under the Americans with Disabilities Act was not good for a long time, and that's why we amended the AA, or the ADA, excuse me. So um, even sometimes when we get law passed, the court's going to have negative impacts on it. Um, or if, you know, we pass a law but Congress won't fund the program that it created, things won't happen. So just because we get a law passed does not mean that things are automatically going to, to happen. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so, pass, you know, creating a law doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect right away. So can anybody give me an example of um, what we have seen positive or I guess negative um, via the implementation of a law in the US? I heard the civil rights laws, yep. Abolition of slavery, that's a great one, yeah. In the state of New York, in the Department of Motor Vehicles, it clearly states that the pedestrian has the right of way. Mm. However, it is not enforced. Mm. And Buffalo, I'm sad to say, has the highest rate of pedestrian vehicle accidents in the state. Oh, wow. So tomorrow, there is a resolution submitted by the Environmental Access Committee. We have three, but this particular one addresses the issue of pedestrian safety. So I hope you will consider it and vote it in. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a great point that we touched on, but I think you just emphasized too, is enforcement of laws. You can pass all the laws in the world, but if they're not going to be enforced by your local, state, federal government, whatever it might look like to enforce those, whether it's through you know criminal laws that need you know law enforcement or they need financial support or whatever it might look like, if you don't enforce those laws, well then nothing's going to happen. So enforcement, that's a really good word. We need to enforce the laws that are passed. I have another comment. I'd like to just backtrack a little bit. Mm -hmm. In FCB, Florida Council, and I'm sure this is not original with us. I'm not implying that it is. But when I took over chairmanship of our legislative committee, we, in, we brought into being our legislative award. Mm -hmm. And we don't give it every year. But when we do... Um, the, the congressperson comes and gets it, and we make a big deal of it. And at every one of our legislative seminars, with very few exceptions, we have congresspeople come from our state legislature, legislatures, not congresspeople. But one of the things I want to say is um, Congressman Bill Arrakis got our legislative award, mm -hmm. and he, time after time now, has, has been a sponsor or a co-sponsor of ACB-driven initiatives. And so that's because we kept talking to him, took our pictures, told him how great he was, <laughs> and gave him our legislative award. I love that. It's true. Arrakis, as Clark mentioned, he's one of the co-sponsors for the Low Vision Bill and a huge, huge ally of ours. So it... it I like to think he cares about the issues, but if, you know, uh, uh, feeding his ego a little bit helped, hey, who am I to say, don't do it? <laughs> so, I was going to bring up, as imperfect as it, it has been, I think we've made a lot of strides in the area of education. I was a teacher, and um, there was a time when 
we had to fight for the title programs and you know we've improved on a, it's kind of like going forward and going backwards sometimes but uh, I think we've made some great strides in that area as especially with uh, MMRs and um, other special education areas. What does MMR stand for? I'm sorry? What does MMR stand for? Oh, uh, uh, Educably Mentally Retarded. Thank um, you. I don't know if there are any other special ed teachers or um, other teachers in the room. I don't know if you would agree, but I think we, we've made some great strides. Great. Um, so just to stay on time, because we're going to do an activity in a little bit, I just want to jump to the last area. So we've talked about the three branches of government, but there are other uh, areas beyond the three branches that we can use to advocate. Can anybody give me an idea of something we could use? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just so you know, the bike handler is deaf. So if you're going to comment, to keep your hands up so I can see you. I think, it, I think I saw that um, media awareness worked really well with mm -hmm. civil rights and marriage equality over the years as gay people became more visible, more people realized they knew them and it was affecting people that they knew and loved. And I, I think that we're seeing more increase in media um, for the blind community mm -hmm. and that's probably gonna be helpful. Yes, media was the first thing I put on my list. Media is huge. We live in a generation of social media and posting things everywhere and Twitter and television everywhere. Yeah, media is huge. I think that's a great, great point. Any other ideas? I think another big area of advocacy that we can look with is a relationship with businesses. ACB has done a great job of working with some major companies like Microsoft and Apple, and maybe again, we're rubbing their ego and saying you're a great company, but as we work with them, they're more willing to you know, support us and make their products accessible. You know, It can be slow moving sometimes, but really working with those businesses can be huge as well, so that's a great thing. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, make sure we're using the microphone. You know, going to the um, Capitol and uh, visiting your legislators face-to-face -face and passing out information about your your affiliate is a nice way also to, you know... To I know. think that's a great form of advocacy that, you know, kind of falls on the legislative branch that we talked about. But, yeah, it's true. It's, it's making your issues known um, to people and to your legislature. But I think even more than that, just getting your voice out there, period, so that people know the issues we're experiencing, that we're not just sitting at home saying nothing. We're getting our voice put out there. That's a great example. Right. Um, a lot, I'd, I'd like to make one comment. A lot of people do not live close to their state capitals, Washington, D.C., we do advocate at the local level. I'm an elected official. We do advocate. I have people coming to me all the time. The most important thing you can do as an individual is call up your local mm -hmm. officials, meet face-to-face. -face. The more they get to see you in person, they remember who you are and what you represent and instead of a phone call, an email, which disappears, 
and makes less of an impression. When you're not close to your state capital, your organization, whether it's ACB or any other organization, many organizations have lobbyists at the state capital at, at Washington, D.C., definitely be working directly with your lobbyists because they're the face-to-face -face person that runs around and meets with all the representatives in Congress and gets that message out and rallies to get the support people on board for what you need to have happen next. I completely agree, but depending on your situation, it's not a bad thing, although it might be louder and more effective to be there face-to-face. I still think it's so important to think, if nothing else, send that email, make that phone call. Um, I know one thing that I've heard is, uh, I actually had a couple legislative internships in college. If you have, uh, everybody sends in the same le letter, so you get a, a group letter and everybody starts sending it, they count those letters. If 200 people send in the same letter, they start to go, oh, maybe our constituents want us to look at that. So don't think it's not important. I agree. Some things are more effective, but that doesn't disqualify other things as well. So there's a switchboard that you can call one number at uh, the Capitol, and the operator will send you off to the right place. So all you need to know is that switchboard number, and you can talk to any office. So again, we're really fortunate. I know it feels like things are really slow moving in the US, but very few other countries do have the opportunity to literally reach out to your representatives. So uh, make sure you do that. It's really important. Um, and I'd like to suggest, it's, it's a little old fashioned, but I think writing editorials hmm. to your local yeah. newspapers yeah, I think that's um, great. is still really important. Um, at least, you know, it gets your issue in front of people. Um, and it, it, it can start a conversation or a debate. So even though it seems like it's, you know, because we've got uh, the Internet and email and blogs and vlogs and YouTube and whatever, I still think editorials matter. I think editorials, that's a great example of media. And I think those other forms you talk about are other examples of media, whether they're blogs or Twitter posts or just getting your voice out there. Any other ideas of other forms of um, advocacy that stretch beyond just the, the branches of the government? This is Kenneth Simeon. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier you mentioned about working with businesses, mm -hmm. and that's one thing Laney Feingold Can has done well. Can you speak into the mic, okay. Ken? One thing that has worked well through uh, Laney Feingold has been structured negotiations, mm -hmm. and she has assisted a number of relationships being built with companies yes. in order to get success. No, that's a great point. It's true. Structured negotiations, you know, it's not always the solution, but often it can be, and um, you can great make relationships. ACB has made some great relationships through some similar situations. Um, uh, Cisco, we started with a, 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 a case through the Federal Communications Commission, and now Cisco has a amazing stellar relationship with ACB where we use their products and they're making all their products accessible for the blind. So some great uh, relationships can be built through situations like that as well. Hi, it's Rachel. Um, I think also just as a side comment with that, if we can tie these issues that we want dealt with to a story that makes mm -hmm. it real, that makes it you know, not just some sort of law that we want to pass, but have somebody who is truly affected by that law one way or another and get their story out there. That's a great, great point. Yeah. Okay. Faith organizations, social organizations, um, just piggybacking on the last speaker, um, are great 
uh, ways to uh, tell a story, story uh, telling um, humanistic from the point of of just the human emotion, you know, mm -hmm. uh, can also help to advance a cause. So yeah. faith organizations and social organizations. That's making me think, too, um, about the use of photography and footage. I know they've said, for instance, I heard apparently there's this iconic photo of a child that was used um, uh, relating to the war in Syria, and apparently it's a really well-known photograph, and so it makes a statement, and it gets people's attention, and they think, this is horrible, it needs to end, so using that kind of media as well, different images or songs or things that invoke thoughts in people's heads. Another idea is to serve on different um, boards and commissions mm -hmm. and cross-sector, not just blind-related, but... Um, when you're able to serve in different capacities in the community, you're able to provide input where, right, in different areas. Yeah, that's great. Great, these are all great ideas. Um, I'm gonna stop us and give us another break, and then after the break, we're going to do an activity where you guys can all put your, your thoughts down on some advocacy issues. Um, um, so I passed out um, some activity sheets around the table. I want groups of, you know, two to three, four if you really want to, but smaller groups. Um, does everybody have at least one activity sheet at your table? Um, I have one more. We have another set. So if there's another small group that needs a sheet, we can give them out. I gave one Braille and one heart, uh, large print for each activity sheet. Does anybody still need one? Sounds like everybody's good. Uh, so I'll go over the, I gave you guys the instructions so you can read them, but I'll go over them out loud so if you guys have any questions. We have given you a topic that's an issue, a civil rights issue in the blind community. So for instance, one of the issues we talked about is being denied a ride in a shared ride service like Uber because you have a guide dog. We also gave you one of the three branches of the government. So your assignment is to take that topic and take that branch of government and talk about how you would find a solution to the problem. So maybe the issue is, uh, again, the issue is a shared ride service denying you a ride and you got the legislative branch. What would you do to help alleviate this problem using the legislative branch? So we want you to talk about both the pros and cons, so how you can solve the problem, but what are the limitations of that branch of government as well with that topic. And then lastly, we also talked about the resources you can use beyond the federal government, so how might you use the media or businesses or the different things we talked about as well. Um, so I'm gonna give you guys maybe 15 minutes to talk amongst yourselves, and then we're gonna go around and share. Uh, yep. That's a good question. Somebody asked, are we thinking of it at the federal level or the state level? Feel free to talk widely and broadly if you want, but I came at it mostly from the federal level just for simplicity, but feel free to talk widely if you want. Um, again, you should be doing it in groups of three, give or take, so a couple of the um, heavy, the more populated tables, I put two um, sheets down. If anybody else needs an extra one, if you want to break into smaller groups, we have a couple extra topics left, so just holler and I can send them over. But again, you should be doing it with maybe three people max. 
Okay, so we're going to go table by table, and each table will, or group, I should say, each group will just have a few minutes to kind of share what you guys came up with. So again, just to recap, um, please let us know uh, what your issue is and which branch of the government you had, and then talk about the pros and cons of that government, and then you can also chime in with other forms of advocacy as well. Um, so do we have our mic runner? Um, can we start in the back? And if you can say who you are when you start talking so we know what group you are. Hello, this is Debbie Grubb, and we had the distinction of being group one. <laughs> and we, we had the guide dog denial issue on shared rides. And the branch of government that we were assigned on the federal level was judicial. And this is what we together decided to do. The first thing we decided to do was to begin to collect information to set up a way that people could send to us their stories, their anecdotes. And we would do it through a place like ACB, listservs, any kind of listserv that we knew, getting people to email. And we would have a place that would receive a person or whatever, receive these emails or receive the phone calls. The next thing we decided to do was to go to one of the, to contact the ADA center and see what we had as far as rights and um, to begin the process of formulating our complaint. Then we thought we would find one of our local attorneys who might either help us pro bono or for, you know, to get our complaint organized and together. While we were organizing our complaint, we decided that we would begin a publicity blitz. If we had um, colleagues in the media, we would have a video prepared showing people saying, I was late for an appointment, I was late for work, with their beautiful guide dogs sitting beside them, and get a lot of people on our side. We discussed at length the way to use the judiciary, and we saw two possible ways, and we didn't look as favorably on the first. And that is to begin a court thing where we would do some sort of a suit, where there would be an accusation, where we would move up through the levels of the court system. We decided, as we had spoken about earlier, that that was a bit time-consuming and expensive. So we decided to use the DOJ complaint system at which we would send our basic complaint that we would have had some professional help in putting together, probably the ACB office, and then we would send some anecdotal information. And so that's what we decided. Great. So you focused on kind of what you guys would do and what some strengths and weaknesses were of the court. So that's great. Thank you. Um, can we move on to our next group? Hi, my name is Kathy Lyons, and our issue is a Medicare reimbursement for low vision devices, and the government entity is, or part branch, is the legislative. So 
we all agreed that there is a bill for this in the House. I don't know if there's one in the Senate or not, but um, we kind of thought that under the current administration, this bill is not likely to go anywhere. And so what we would do instead is to create something like a PSA to show some seniors at a senior center using some of these devices, either magnifiers or CCTVs or what have you, and perhaps also have someone who manufactures these devices or sells them, whichever, and um, be sure that the prices are there so that the viewers can see that and try and you know get the word out. These seniors can complete tasks with these devices, but they really can't afford to buy them, and therefore they might have to go without a device because of the cost. Did you want to hear anything? Great. So you talked about the the uh, potential restrictions being the current administration. Did you talk about any pros to this being a piece of legislation? Would you repeat that, please? So we were talking about the pros and cons of going through that branch of the government. You talked about the uh, cons being that this current administration probably wouldn't be successful in bringing the law. Did you talk about any of the pros of uh, bringing about the legislation? We did mention the fact that there is a bill already. Okay. Okay, great. We can move on to our next group. This is Steve Bauer from Los Angeles, and we're Group 5, tasked with uh, talking about voting accessibility, and our governmental branch was the legislature. So what we talked about was uh, trying to introduce a bill that would restore some of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act, and um, what we talked about was uh, getting uh, our members, ACB members, chapter members, to write letters Uh, to legislators, perhaps discussing specific instances where uh, a blind voter was denied access uh, to a voting machine, maybe not denied access, but just the voting machine wasn't working, and being encouraged to let somebody else fill the ballot out for us. Uh, We also talked about uh, putting together petitions, um, and which we could then take to legislators, uh, showing numbers of people that were in support of this bill, and then, of course, arranging meetings with legislators and uh, taking those letters, those anecdotes, and those petitions, uh, and then encouraging our legislator to become co-sponsor of this bill, and then encouraging our members to write to their legislators uh, whether or not we could meet with them to, to also encourage their co-sponsorship of the bill. Perfect. Great. Thank you. All right, uh, my name is Matt Selm, and we had, all right, we had a group four, which was autonomous vehicles, and we had the judicial branch. So what we discussed was, of course, filing a, a suit, and obviously the, you know, negatives to that is it's going to take time and energy, and we might lose, and then have to appeal further up the, the chain. Um, positives is that, you know, we could obviously win and have the law interpreted in our favor. Uh, we also discussed if there were other 
existing suits in other parts of the country, filing a friend of the court brief, um, or um, it's also a possibility that you could reach a, a settlement if, you, if it's a private entity, for example. Um, and, you know, you, you obviously would have to, to get what you want, you may have to give up something um, or, you know, a settlement. While it's not as expensive as going through a full-blown suit, um, it may be time-limited or it may be monitored for a short amount of time. So that's about it. Great, thank you. I think another thing to focus on with that one that's interesting is if you were to bring a suit, what would you bring the suit against? That one might be a little bit more difficult because it's such a new thing that you know maybe down the road there could be a suit in a way for autonomous vehicles, but you know it might not exist yet. So another limitation. Okay, next group. Okay, this is Don Kelman, and we have Group Ten which is workplace reasonable accommodations in the government branches, the judicial. So here we are working at a place and we need screen readers to do our job. And they update their system and when they did, they eliminated the screen readers. So we decided to go to the equal opportunity person or supervisor or the ADA coordinator of that company Okay, we wanted to start out small. We just didn't want to jump right into the judicial uh, courts. Okay, so then after that, we didn't get any place with those people. We went to the state civil rights person. Still, we didn't get any place. Then we went to the U.S. Department of Justice to the civil rights division there. So after that, we did, we're not getting anywhere. Uh, we're um, going to file a lawsuit with the ADA against the uh, discrimination against blind people in work workable uh, workplace uh, accommodations. So that's that's that. Oh, she's not saying anything. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was walking up to the mic. Great. Did you did you talk about any of the pros or cons of bringing the suit? Well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Did you talk about any of the pros or cons about bringing a suit? No, we didn't. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. Those are just the things we want to think about. You know, is bringing a suit. You did talk about the fact that you tried to work within the system with DOJ and it failed, so maybe the pro is nothing else worked, so I had to go bring a suit. So you can kind of think about it that way, the different steps you take. And you know, if one thing doesn't work, then you have to try the next. Is it going to cost money? Is it going to take time, et cetera, et cetera? OK. We had um, our topic of area of concern was about the accessibility of user interfaces uh, at reception and point of sale. The branch was the executive branch. So we had a fair amount of discussion about uh, how we would identify at what the appropriate point of the executive branch would be to, to contact about this. Um, we had concerns about which cabinet level organization and sub-organizations and below that. Um, for example, Department of Commerce uh, could be transportation if these point of sales were perhaps related to uh, travel, uh, flights, and that sort of thing. 